This morning, we are going to be returning to Matthew chapter 24. Um, Before we do, regardless of the fact that the stores started putting decorations out uh, for Christmas just after Halloween, I believe, this year, um, ready or not, here it is. It's upon us. It doesn't matter how early they advertise for Christmas, it always feels like it kind of sneaks up on us. And just three Sundays back, we were lighting the first Advent candle. Uh, It seems like it's just gone by in a flash, and here it is, Christmas Eve. Tonight, then, we'll be lighting the last of of the candles, and then tomorrow morning, it's here. Christmas morning, and maybe you're thinking about everything uh, right now that you still have to do. You have to get done, or presents you still need to wrap, or maybe even purchase, or food that needs needs to be prepared. Well, ready or not, here it is. And then, in a flash, it will be gone. And we will all try to shed a few extra pounds, maybe, that we picked up during the holidays. We'll get back to waking up earlier and life as usual. During this Advent season over the last few weeks, uh, we've been looking at Jesus' teaching found in Matthew chapter 24. There we saw at the very end of Matthew 23 that Jesus actually made this prophetic declaration about Jerusalem, that Jerusalem's house would be left desolate. He pronounced like this judgment over Jerusalem, and then In the beginning of chapter 24, he said that the temple would come down. Uh, Not one stone would be left on top of another. The the whole temple complex would be decimated. It was at that point that his disciples uh, asked some questions. That um, That was unsettling to them and perplexing, but at the same time, a little bit intriguing. And they asked this question of Jesus, or these questions. They said, tell us when these things will be. And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? In the disciples' mind, Jesus saying that the temple would be destroyed, that that must mean that at that moment, Jesus will come in glory to reign and it will, be, it will mark the end of the age all, all at once. They wanted to know two things. What's the timing and what are the accompanying signs? When's it going to happen and how can we know? What, when, will this, when should we set this on our calendars and what should we look for to know that it's here? That's what we, we looked at then, Jesus' response in verses 4 through 28. I believe Jesus is describing the entire time between his advents, between his first and second coming. Uh, Jesus gave guidance, if you'll remember, uh, back from a few Sundays back. He gave some guidance, some warnings, really, about how to live in the in-between, between his first coming and then his second coming, his return. Remember, he said two things. He said, don't be deceived. There's going to be things that will deceive you, things that people say, things that, that people claim to be, claiming that they are the Christ or a, this... this um, person who comes with special knowledge, maybe, and draw people to themselves. He said, don't be deceived by them. He said, also, don't be deceived by by those who may try to lead you astray, saying that he has already come. And he said, don't be alarmed. 
Don't be alarmed. Don't be deceived and don't be alarmed. And don't be alarmed because of what you experience. There are going to be wars. There will be uh, disasters. There will be persecution within the church. There will be defections. People who leave the church. Don't be alarmed. There will be false teachers that rise up inside the church. Don't be alarmed. So, Jesus was, it seems to be preparing us, equipping the church, letting us know we have an an enemy, and his two tactics are to deceive us and to alarm us. Don't be deceived, and don't be alarmed. Now, he talked about, also, he gave promises, uh, and promises, they're they're right there in those, those same section of verses, and he said that we should persevere because salvation is ahead. No matter what you experience in the in-between, know that your salvation is ahead. And then he also made the promise that during this time, between his first coming and his second coming, the gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ will go to every corner of the world, to every nation. This message of the gospel of salvation in Christ, the forgiveness of sins, this is going to go into all the world. Now, he also did specify that there's going to be birth pains, though. There's going to be pains that are experienced by the church in this time of between the two advents. One very specific birth pain that he talks about in verses 15 to 21 we looked at, and that was the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. He talks about that in in some very clear ways of what's going to happen there in the city of Jerusalem. That's a very specific birth pain, but the time of tribulation will continue throughout the inter-advental period, the time between the two advents. Tribulation is going to continue, and there will be, it seems, a very, a very intensified tribulation just before the end. Now, there will be some who claim, as I mentioned before, that Jesus has already returned, but Jesus makes it clear. He says, my return will be unmistakable. It will be unmistakable. You won't have to ask, did he come back or didn't he come back? It will be like lightning in the sky that's seen from the east to the west. It will be undeniable. And then finally, the last thing that we looked at was in all of this, the consistent caring character of our Savior. Jesus, who is approaching his arrest and crucifixion, he knew what was just ahead of him. And and he's telling his followers about the very difficult things that are going to lie ahead of us all, but he gave warnings. He told the believers in Jerusalem of when to leave the city to save their own lives. He calls us to pray, cry out that God may ease the persecution and discomfort that you experience. Jesus, who is our mediator, the one who who intercedes on our behalf, is telling us as followers of Christ, pray, cry out to me for help. We see even the good shepherd here as he's describing suffering within the church that he will be with us and for us. Now, that brings us to verse 29. And this morning, we're going to have a pretty long reading here. If you're able, if you would stand with me for the reading of God's Word. I'm going to be reading verses 29 all the way to 51, which is the end of that chapter. This is in Matthew 24. It is printed there in your bulletin if you would like to follow along. 
Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will will not give its light and the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see all these things, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark, and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then two men will be in the field, one will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken and one left. Therefore stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that wicked servant says to himself, My master is delayed and begins to beat his fellow servants and eats and drinks with drunkards. The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an an hour he does not know and he will cut him in pieces and put him with the hypocrites. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. You may be seated. Uh, As I was thinking about what to preach during Advent and wanting to take just a short break from Isaiah, we will be, Lord willing, returning to Isaiah uh, next Sunday morning. Uh, My mind, I kept going to Matthew 24 several years ago, or actually just a couple of summers back, we looked at um, some of the parables of Matthew 25, which is a continuation of this, and I encourage you to read that again. Jesus is talking about living prepared for his second coming there. But I kept going back to Matthew 24, like, I just, I want to address this chapter because we didn't do it before, and it'll be a nice break. And, and then I didn't realize actually the time that we were going to be away one of those Sundays. So here I am trying to squeeze in Matthew 24 into a large portion of it on the Sunday before Christmas. And of, of all chapters, I may have picked the most controversial in all of Scripture and the most debated. And it's actually quite, it, it, 
I'm, I'm not at ease even in preaching it in some ways because I've read commentaries and books and writings by so many different uh, theologians and authors and pastors who I respect deeply, who love God's Word, and they interpret this passage very differently at times. So, I'm, I'm going to tell you what, what I believe, what I, what I think this passage is saying, and, and, and going to work through verse by verse some of this, but, but I want you to know there are, are many very orthodox understandings of what Jesus is describing here. And this is, this is difficult language because Jesus is entering into this prophetic, apocalyptic kind of writing and teaching, which is, which is it's hard to know when, what to take literally and what is figurative. It's all real and true, but, but what do we, how do we value which piece and how do we assess that? It's not easy. So I'm gonna tell you what, what I believe the text, what Jesus is describing, and, and then I'm going to, at the very end, focus on what I think we need to focus the most on. So we're gonna catch that at the very end. I do wanna walk through the passage kind of verse by verse, and what we see in the first, uh, from verses 29 to 35, verses 29 to 35, I think what Jesus is laying out for us is that just as certainly as the birth pains have come, they will culminate in Jesus' return and our salvation. Just as certainly as the birth pains that he described in, in verses 4 to 28, that they have come, just as certainly as those have come, he will come. The, 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 those have been fulfilled at least in part, and we can have confidence that, that He is coming, and that as He comes, that our salvation is drawing nigh. So, that's in verses 29 to 35. So, but Jesus, um, here in verse 29, He begins depicting His return using allusions, that's with an A, from the Old Testament. Many different Old Testament passages, we can find them kind of alluded to in this, in this verse. Verse 29, uh, there we read, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. You can find that language in, in multiple Old Testament passages and what Jesus is saying is that after a prolonged season of tribulation and hardship and suffering in which there's disasters and all the things he mentioned before, that there will be cataclysmic events, not only impacting the visible creation, but also powers in heaven, in the heavens, referring, I believe, to spiritual forces. Now, some people interpret this, these um, these depictions that this is interpreting or, or indicating the fall of kings and empires on earth. In the Old Testament, when we read these, these statements and, and these, um, these phrases really that he alludes to here in strings together, they all seem to have to do with the day of the Lord. It's the day of the Lord in which God will come in judgment. I believe what Jesus is emphasizing here is he is linking his second coming to that day. When I come again, it will be the day of the Lord, the day of judgment. That's what he's emphasizing. Now, if you continue in verse 30, he says, then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. Now, this is a, a very specific reference that you find in Daniel chapter 7. 
In Daniel chapter 7, we read about the one who is the son of man, or like the son of man, who is given dominion. He has glory. He's given an everlasting kingdom. And he is served by all people. He will be Lord. This will be when, I believe, this, the sign of the Son of Man will be Jesus coming in the clouds with power and glory. Look what he says in verse 30. And then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. And then it ends with, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. You will see the fulfillment of Daniel chapter 7 when I come back. So Jesus is going to come in power and glory in his second coming. Now, this is in contrast, we could say, to his first coming. Right? We heard from Philippians before, and we sang uh, that hymn, Jesus sweet and mild. In his first coming, he came in humility and in weakness. He was a baby who was held and laid in a manger. He came and took the form of a servant, surrendering himself even to death on a cross for our salvation. But that's not what his second advent's gonna be like. L listen to Revelation chapter 19, verse 11 to 16. Revelation 19, verses 11 to 16. Listen to this depiction of the return of Christ. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse... The one sitting on it is called faithful and true. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords." This evening, we're going to hear about the wise men, the wise men who went to, to Herod and saying, where has he been born, king of the Jews? It's just a whisper almost, these wise men from far away whispering that there's a king born. And Herod, as you know, tries to extinguish, tries to eliminate this one who is even being whispered, rumored that a king is born, not on the, his second return though. In his second return, we won't wonder, is this a king? It will be declared and he'll have the name written that all can see. This is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. Jesus is saying that will be the sign of the Son of Man coming. But also we found in, see in verse 30 in the middle that not everyone will be celebrating his arrival. We read, then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. You can find something very similar to this in the book of Zechariah, Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10. There we read, when they look on him, on him, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn. Zechariah said, they're going to look on the one who they pierced and they will mourn. Or in Revelation chapter 1, verse 7, behold, he is coming with the clouds 
and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. People will be wailing and grieving and crying out in sorrow and sadness at the sight of Jesus because his presence will condemn them. It condemns people for their sin, but also those who then rejected him. Revelation chapter 6, it describes how kings at the coming of Christ, how kings and generals and the rich and the powerful and the slaves and the free, those who've rejected Christ will, will hide in holes and caves and in the mountains at his return, begging that the rocks would, quote, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. What an odd combination of words, the wrath of the lamb, hide us, the one who is pierced, when he returns, there will be some who mourn and wail because the lamb will come in glorious wrath. For those who've rejected him, the day of his return will be the worst day they've ever experienced. But there are others Others who experienced grief over their sin before that day. Others who recognized, as we did earlier in the service, that we have sinned against God. Others who've grieved over their sin and cried out in repentance and faith, looked to Christ. Those who have grieved before for their sin and found their peace in Jesus, in that day, their experience will be radically different. Look at verse 31. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. Jesus coming in judgment, power and glory, it won't be a cause for weeping for everyone. For those who've looked on him in faith, who've just cried out in humble, simple faith, Jesus, my hope and my trust is in you. For them, the day of Jesus' return, or can I say for us, the day of Jesus' return will be the best day ever. The best day we've had yet. And a foretaste of heaven itself. The fruit of the gospel The fruit of the gospel that we read about back in verse 14, the gospel that goes uh, up to, that's proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, the fruit of that gospel will have had its effect. The elect will have come to salvation. They'll have heard the testimony and believed. In the Old Testament, the trumpet call, like we hear the, the voice of a trumpet mentioned here, the trumpet was used to call God's people together to worship. You know, like people have a, have a dinner bell they ring, they ring, or when our kids were young, we had a certain woo-whoop, I won't do it right now, little horse, it would sound terrible. But Lori would call out the back door, and if she did it twice, they knew, come inside the house. This was really helpful when we lived out up in the mountains during our time in seminary because you didn't know where the kids were. So you just woo-woop out the door and you'd see them coming, hopefully, <laughs> hopefully coming. Here, though, it's, this, it's, it's like a voice of an archangel, a trumpet blast. And this trumpet blast is not only heard in the backyard or, or in the area or uh, in a small area, but around the world. 
And the elect are gathered together, gathered to worship, gathered to fellowship, gathered to see and know their Savior who has come for them as we're welcomed. But what certainty can we have? So, so Jesus is making these promises about what will happen at his return, both in, as, he, as he judges, but also as he gathers his people. What certain do we, certainty can we have? And verse 32 addresses that. Jesus says, from the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branches become tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. The earlier signs that you've seen already, the things that he's mentioned, disasters, hardship, suffering, tribulation, the fall of Jerusalem, those things are indicators that the certainty of his arrival is, or that his arrival is certain. We don't have to doubt it. So the earlier signs point to the certainty of their, of their consummation, their culmination. Listen to Philip Ryken, a minister and, uh, who wrote a, a helpful commentary um, on Luke in this passage as Luke deals with it. He wrote this, every terrifying disaster is a portent of the final judgment. Every earthquake and tsunami, every hurricane and tornado, every terrorist attack and military conquest is another foothill in the mountain range of God's justice. But there is also grace. God does not withhold all of his wrath until the very end, but gives the world many merciful warnings in advance of the final day. He does this so that we will run to Jesus and find safety in his cross while there is still time. Trust Jesus to save you in the final judgment and you will be delivered. Each thing we experience now, whether it is the common infirmities of the body or, or disasters or tribulation or suffering, any of those things that we see, Jesus says, these all will lead to my coming. They are just a taste, they are a reminder actually that our Savior indeed is coming. He's kept his word. In Luke's recording of this teaching, if you were to read in Luke chapter 21, Jesus says that believers though, that as followers of Christ, those who just trust in him, that we don't have to see those signs and look on them with foreboding fear. Often when we, when we talk to one another about the things we see in the world, we have a sense of fear and we're alarmed. Jesus says you don't have to be alarmed, but he says when these things begin to take place, Straighten up, <laughs> raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. That doesn't mean we, we, we don't grieve over hardship and suffering and tribulation. We don't, we don't grieve with those who grieve, but, but, but we don't grieve in such a way that it leads to despair. No, we grieve with hope because we know that this is all one more indication that my redemption is drawing near. The day of judgment for some is our day of vindication, <laughs> and that is what is drawing near. When we will be declared at the coming of Christ, when we will be declared righteous, not because of our righteousness, but His. So Jesus has answered the two initial questions. Verse 33, look at what He says. So also, when you see all these things, you know that He is near at the gates. Now, this is… This is um, a difficult passage. The, the word he is provided there. It's just a third person singular verb. It could be it is near. 
Some translations have that. Perhaps Jesus is saying, uh, talking back to answering their first question, when will, when will the temple be destroyed? He says, when you see these things happening that he described earlier, you can know that it's near. It's at the very gates. The city's about to be destroyed. So he gives them a sense of when the temple will be destroyed, but then he, he also differentiates that from the end of the age. He goes on to say, truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Uh, this perhaps is the, the most difficult of the verses because it depends on how we understand the word generation. Uh, the, the Greek term used there is used in several different ways in Scripture. It could, for instance, be talking about a generation of an ethnic people. Some believe that Jesus is saying, the Jews will not pass away from the face of the earth until I come again. Some think that, no, Jesus is saying it is a generation of people who are united spiritually. Believers will not be eliminated from the earth before I return, no matter how long that takes. Both of those are, are viable and good understanding of the word generation. That may be what he means. I lean toward thinking that he's referring to the first generation of Christians, and in fact, all of the things that Jesus described in verses 4 to 28, all the things that lead up to his return in verse 29, all of those things took place, at least in part, during that generation. You're going to experience all of these kinds of birth pangs even before you pass away as he talks to that first generation. But those things didn't come to an end. He doesn't say that they're all going to end before this generation uh, passes away. Most of them, in fact, most of these birth pains outside the destruction of the temple have continued to happen ever since. So, think about it this way. You may have a, a, meet a young couple that's expecting their first child, and as experience, or, or as parents, you tell them, and maybe, maybe Grace and Eli heard this before, uh, you're going to experience deep joy, wonder, confusion, <laughs> anger, absolute delight, all before your child reaches the age of one, all before your child is one-year-old. Now, the couple would be silly to think, whoa, all of those things before one, and then after one, we don't experience any of those anymore. No, you're just saying you're going to experience all of those emotions even in the first year, and guess what? It's only going to continue. And that's how I understand what Jesus is saying here. And now, verse 35, verse 35, uh, let's read that together. Jesus says, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. All of this, everything that Jesus is, is saying, our certainty, it is rooted and grounded in the eternality of Jesus' word. That's both the promises of his coming and judgment, the judgment of all who refuse him and the promises of forgiveness and salvation and deliverance for all who trust in him. It is grounded not in what your eyes are going to see or what your ears hear, but it is grounded in the very words of Jesus. He's saying, you can rest assured. You can rest assured in my promises. I will deal with justice. Jesus will deal with justice for others and give salvation for his church. Now, I want to transition into that other part of what I said I wanted to talk about in this passage. 
there's a consistent theme in the New Testament in any teaching on the return of Christ. As we look to the, the, um, to the eschaton, to the, to the return, the parousia, to Jesus' returning and coming back in the day of the Lord and judgment, the consistent teaching in Scripture isn't you need to figure out when that's going to happen. That's not the consistent theme for us as believers. In fact, if you look in Acts chapter 1, I may read this next week. In Acts chapter 1, this is Jesus after his death and resurrection and before his ascension. Listen to what he says to his disciples. He says, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. <laughs> How much time and effort and ink do, have we spilled as Christians in trying to figure out when's it going to be? When is it going to happen? Or has he come? Has he not come? When he seems to make it clear, you're going to know when I've come. <laughs> you're not going to have to ask each other, do you think maybe he came and this year or that year? No, it's going to be clear. And this consistent teaching of Scripture isn't you need to go back and discern and decipher so that you can tell when he's coming. But no, it's, it's something very different. Jesus even said to his disciples, that's not for you to know the times and the seasons. There is something that he has that's radically different. We're going to look next week at Acts chapter 1 verse 8 and see what he says that is, but we're going to get a hint of it today. So, I want to pick up in verse 36, and what I want us to see now in this closing section is that our job isn't to identify when Christ is coming back, but to stay ready for when he does come. That's what our job is. That's what he's called us to. Now, why or this is going to reinforce that idea of uh, that this isn't for us. Look at verse 36. Jesus says, but concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. And Jesus says, this is, this is not for you. The angels in heaven don't even know. And Jesus, I believe in, in, in speaking as a man who is, who's fully man and who is um, in, in some ways willingly set aside his independent exercise of, of his godly attributes in ways. He, he says, the Father only knows this. God the Father, that doesn't mean that Jesus isn't omniscient and doesn't know all things, but, but he defers in a sense. God the Father knows this. So why are we trying to figure it out? Jesus said, don't consume your life with trying to, to figure out things that aren't for you. But then he goes on to describe, this is what it's gonna be like. Let me give you a sense of, of what it is going to be like when I, when I come back. And he gives us a lesson from the past. Look at verse 37 to 39. He says, for as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came, swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. This is what it'll be like. Everyday, everyday ordinary people will be doing everyday ordinary things. These aren't bad things that he mentions. These are good things. Eating and drinking, getting married, giving in marriage. These are great things. And Jesus says, it's going to be like that. You're going to be going about ordinary life, ordinary business, and then I'll come. Listen to D.A. Carson. I think, thought he made a good point on this. He says, if in one sense you may look at this period, our time today, as a period of apostasy recurring, of persecutions, of famines, 
of the preaching of the gospel, cataclysmic, important, devastating events. We can say in some ways, hey, we see the signs, we see the birth pains. He goes on to say, it is also a period of the ordinary. We keep doing ordinary things. And he says, and it is the ordinary that may deceive us. The very ordinariness of our days may deceive us. Jesus says, that's what it's gonna be like though. Eating, drinking, giving in marriage, going on walks, playing disc golf. You should try it. It's a great game. (laughs) Doing ordinary things. Hitting trees while playing disc golf. That's a very ordinary thing. Doing ordinary things and then suddenly he's there. So in Noah's day, people were just eating, drinking, marrying, doing various things while Noah's over there building a massive boat. Probably 50 to 75 years he spent building that boat. And then when he was 600 years old, we're told, Noah entered the ark. They still didn't notice. Hey, Noah just got in the boat. Hey, we've we've got a wedding to go to. We need to, are you fixing the meal? We're doing ordinary things, ordinary life. But then it started raining. The water started rising and it swept them away. Jesus says, so will it be the coming of the Son of Man. It'll be unanticipated unconsidered by many. They weren't even thinking about a flood. Life will feel very normal until then it isn't. And then he gives a couple of of little uh, parable-like statements about um, working and what's going to happen. Look at verse 40 and 41. Then two men will be in the field. One will be taken, one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one left. Again, these are ordinary people doing ordinary things. But notice they will be impacted in extraordinarily different ways. Two people doing the same thing, and there's suddenly, suddenly this huge difference between them. Jesus is probably depicting here just a father and a son working in the field. Maybe a a mother and daughter milling, milling wheat together. They had a, a hand mill, it would be what the two of them would have used. And then there will suddenly be a cleavage a gulf between them. Many people wonder about who is it that's going to be taken here? Who will be taken away? Will the believer be taken up, maybe gathered by the angels from the four winds like we heard earlier? Or maybe, maybe it's the unbeliever who will be taken up, swept away into judgment like in the days of Noah. In the days of Noah, it was the unbelievers who were swept away. The point isn't who's taken up here, but the fact that in the day of Christ's return, there's a separation between people and it will be final. That's the point Jesus is making. There won't be any more opportunities at that point to repent. No more opportunities to cry out in faith. One moment it will seem like like these two people have all the time in the world to, to think about things and to have that conversation they've been putting off or getting things in order or maybe getting their life right with God, as people say. But then suddenly there's no more time. And then as Paul wrote to the, to the believers in Corinth, we must all appear in that moment before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he's done in the body, whether evil or good. Because then that, that will be the day of judgment. So how do we live How do we live in light of this that it's not for us to know when it's going to happen and that Christ will come in just an ordinary, seemingly ordinary season of life and there will suddenly be these cataclysmic things maybe that happen in the stars and in the heavens and then suddenly we'll 
Some will be swept away. How do we live in the light of that? That is, I think, what Jesus, all of this is driving to. So let's look and see, how should we live in light of his imminent and coming return? Jesus gives two more parables here, verse 42 through 44. And in this parable, he's going to tell us to be awake and ready. Therefore, stay awake. For you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you must also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. In 1 Thessalonians 5, that we studied a few years ago, um, being awake there is likened to being sober. To being sober and sleeping is associated with drunkenness. That's not just the the effect of substances like alcohol or drugs, but anything, anything that we would turn to to numb us from life, to distract us from the here and now, to distract us from the realities of who Christ is and what he's called us to do and be. Anything that we run to that's like drunkenness, that's like being asleep at the wheel of life. And we stay ready. So if we stay awake, then we, we stay in the moment realizing who, his, who Christ is and who we are and how he's called us to live in light of his coming. And how do we stay ready? We stay ready through the very common and ordinary means of grace. Through just time in the word. Just time in the word. Through prayer. Time in prayer keeps us ready. Sitting under the word preached, whether it's short sermons or long sermons on huge sections, it's just time under the teaching and preaching of God's word and receiving the sacraments in fellowship with other believers. That keeps us ready. That reminds us week after week, we come in here and remember eternal realities and eternal promises. That keeps us ready, looking forward. He then tells another parable. Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master set over his household to give them their food at the proper time? Lori and I were gone for almost a whole week, uh, recently celebrating an anniversary, and we left our kids at home. They're old enough. They don't need babysitters, but I think one was kind of left in charge of something. Was was somebody left in charge? Parker was left in charge? (laughs) I'm not sure. Uh, uh, I know different ones had different things maybe, but if we didn't leave anybody in charge, then who's gonna care for anybody? Jesus says, it's like a master who left and said, you're in charge to one of his servants. And notice that servant is responsible for caring for all the other servants, the whole household. They're called to look over. But he describes though a wicked servant. Jesus describes a wicked servant who says this, But if that wicked servant says to himself, my master's delayed, he's not coming back for a long time and begins to beat his fellow servants and eats and drinks with drunkards, he then describes what the master of the house will do when he returns and he will judge and punish that servant. The the wicked servant, because he sees his master's delay in returning, he's cunning, he speaks to himself, he's cruel then to others, and he's carousing. He's opportunistic. He's inhumane toward others and indulgent. I'm just going to indulge in this life. Jesus says that's the wicked servant, but the faithful servant, what does this faithful servant do? He cares well for the other servants. He feeds them. 
Faithful servants of Jesus will continue caring for the people and the responsibilities that Christ has entrusted to them. The the faithful servant who's a student will keep doing their work well and, and continue to learn because in doing that, they're actually helping provide for others later in life. Or the parent who continues to care for their children or grandchildren. The one who continues to go to work regularly to earn a wage to help provide for others and to grow to be generous toward others. It's being fruitful and productive, not for our own sakes and our own indulgence, but to be a blessing in this world because in doing so, we're actually showing that we're hopeful for the return of Christ. If he wasn't coming back, then we would just simply consume all we could, could consume. But instead, as people who have the promise of the return of our Savior and King, we can be benevolent. That's the faithful servant, caring for others daily, moment by moment, day by day, serving Jesus, being ready for his return just by doing the next thing, whether that's farming or milling wheat or teaching, feeding others, loving the least, whatever we do, serving others in the name of Christ. Now, on the church calendar, Advent, the season of Advent culminates with Christmas tomorrow, This year, let's let Christmas begin a year of Advent. What if we flip that around? And as we celebrate Christ's first coming, we begin a year of Advent looking forward intentionally to his second coming. May Christmas actually propel us into a year of living in anticipation of Christ's return. Awake, ready, faithful, and wise. Yes, get back to exercise and rest and routine, but continue to do good things in faithful anticipation of your Savior. And may we all together say, come, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you that you have um, given promises, promises that indeed you will come and that in your coming, Lord, you will gather your own And in that day, we will see you, that our our faith will be turned to sight, and we will experience your glory. We will see it, and we will somehow enter into that, and we will be be transformed. And we, we long for that day. But would you help us in the here and now to live faithfully in anticipation of it? Help us to find joy The joy knowing that with each passing day and moment and activity and even each passing struggle and hardship and trial, that our redemption is drawing nigh. Lord, give us that hopeful anticipation. Do that in your church. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.